Welcome to Disney Animation Minute Essentials, where we are going through Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs one minute at a time. I'm Andrew Dorowski. And I'm Kestra Dorowski. And finishing out the week, we have Scott from DuelingGenre.com. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, this has been a really fun week. Well, I hope I hope it still finishes that way. <laughs> we shall see. Jury's still out, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at this minute, minute 35, uh, begins with the dwarfs sneaking successfully, finally, into their own bedroom. <laughs> and ends as they are poised to strike Snow White sleeping in the bed. They've pulled the sheet away, and they are ready to bring down their weapons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then they then they don't. They just watch her breathe. They, they, they kind of flinch, like it looks like they're about to, and then it yeah. kind of stops. Yeah, they're like yeah. they they start the swing. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the door opening, mm-hmm. and Doc first peers his head through the door. This like this is like the same thing that happened when they first peered through their front door last week. Mm-hmm. I'm still confused how all seven heads fit through a door like that. It's not all the way open, and <laughs> they seem, and some of them seem like they are on top of the other dwarfs, and it just doesn't seem like you can fit seven bodies into that space and be able to fit all heads through there. Hmm. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, nothing about the physics of what's happening at that door make any sense whatsoever. Uh, Doc is, Doc is, I mean, you can see almost all of Doc's entire body, and it looks uh like his body is like merged through Sleepy. um, Because Sleepy's head is like poking out of his armpit or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, And Dopey again. It's like between his legs? Between the beard. Between. The beard and probably underneath the legs and everything. Of Sleepy. Yeah. Does um, he step on Dopey's head again? Not in this one. Oh. Some, somehow. Some, I, thought he di- I thought he did. But somehow, they all start walking and Dopey magically appears to be standing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just out of nowhere. Like, you don't see him, like, move up. He's, he's on the ground and then he's standing. It's weird. I don't understand it. It's driving me crazy. It could be a glitch. We need to move on. Like they should have. They should have <laughs> animated, animated magic. <laughs> yes. Uh, when I was watching this one at the beginning of this minute, as they open the door and you get the light streaming in, this is again my question about like I don't know how they do the shadows and how they do like a shaft of light into this room because they definitely aren't repainting the background. Or anything, because the backgrounds are really intensive watercolor and take, like, a painstaking process. Yeah. But this water, like, cracks in through the door, and I don't know how they, like, what they lay down across the camera or whatever to to create that shadow. Maybe a sort of, uh, like a, maybe like a sunglasses layer? Like, maybe they build, like, a, like a tint? Yeah, like a tinted glass? Yeah, that they put over the background, and then they move it as the door opens. Right. Because I imagine that the lighting on the characters is done on the character layer, because why wouldn't you? You have to draw them right. anyway. Um, but the on the background, I bet it's like a it's like a tinted glass layer. Yeah. That's that's my best guess, but it's really striking in this minute in particular because you have the dark room and then you get bits of it illuminated. Things like an axe 
that's on the floor, which they don't grab. They stick with their pickaxes for some reason. <laughs> but the there's, other, like, the a other... proper axe. Right. But, like, okay, so going back to the lighting thing, if you're looking at uh, – there's a point where they – right after uh, Snow White stretches and they're like, it is a monster because they've never seen sheets before. Um <laughs> They you you cut to back to them and if you look at the window that's sort of behind Doc, right where the stream of light is breaking, the window is actually uneven, which tells me that it is like a like a like a glass layer or something that is separating the two uh, images and making them uneven. Okay, hmm. you see that? Uh, I I don't have it to pull up right here. Yeah, I, I believe you, and I will look for it um, when we're researching the next set of minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I will take that as evidence for the tinted glass. I don't believe it. it. It sounds more realistic than something yeah, I can't, else I would come up with. Yeah, it sounds like the most reasonable yeah, um, exactly. of the options. Mm-hmm. The other thing I noticed towards the beginning is the... And if you've got it to pull up, I go back to when they're coming through the door... The lamp that Doc is holding doesn't look quite right, like it's um, part of the animation with them. It looks somehow... Um, I mean, when I when I was watching it, it looked like it had been digitally put in, but I know it couldn't possibly have been like that in the late 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it was just a different cell of animation or something, and it it's it, not it stays the same way that the characters are inked. Yeah, there's no like dark lines around it at at that moment, and it doesn't wave until they start walking. And then once they start walking, as it waves, it's kind of just like towards him and then stops. Like towards yeah, so it's almost like they had a sheet and they just like twisted it a little bit offset mm-hmm. and then twisted it back um, with each frame. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm intrigued, like, what that is. But it also works as being, like, the, the point where the light's coming from. Like, it seems to illuminate correctly from there. Mm-hmm. But at the end of this minute, it, does, it, it, looks, it looks different. It looks like it's been part of the animation again. Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. it, it gets the black lines and everything. Right. So I'm curious about, you know, that one thing in particular. I was like, oh, that, it just strikes me as being a little bit off. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of it. It's, I mean, it's hard to ask these questions when you really can't ever get the answers to because everyone who worked on it is, is gone. Yeah, long gone. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really difficult to like have these these thoughts. It's like, oh, what's going on right there? And and back then they weren't into really into documenting each thing. And- yeah, we're lucky to have what documentary we have of the processes they were going through and, and things like that. It's, it's the same way that, um, you know, the, the preservation of film and filmmaking as an art and as a technique and all of that wasn't really latched onto for Mm -hmm. many, many years. I mean, there's movies that they don't have copies of that. They know there's that they know studios made. It's like, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Like we know we made this film. Here's some production, like some promotional materials and a script. Um, here's some notes about when it was filmed. We don't know what it looked like because we don't have any of the film. 
Yeah. Like, all of the film was sent out or recorded over. So they're like hoping it's like maybe some crazy movie theater in Argentina still has it in their back room. Right. That's uh, that's actually um, one of the other podcasts that we do at Dueling Genre. It's on hiatus right now while we wait for the new season to start. But we do The Doctor's Companion, which is a Doctor Who podcast. And as we watch the older episodes, because that show premiered in 63, and back then they made shows for you to watch on TV. And then they were like, okay, we aired it. Who would ever want to see this again? So to save money, the BBC would tape over the mm-hmm. tapes. And so there are there are something like 60 episodes of Doctor Who that just don't exist. 60? Yeah. I had no idea it was that many. Yeah, well, a lot. Because it, it's 60 episodes because they were serials. So each one was like four to, to like eight parts, mm. um, eight episodes long. But yeah, about 60 episodes that are just gone. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, they would just tape it over and then we would, they would find them sometimes by, like you said, like, like, uh, you know, other stations and other countries would happen to have one. Like they just found two, uh, two stories. I think it ended up being like six or eight episodes that they found like a couple of years ago. Yeah. In I remember a, this. Yeah. yeah in, a, in a, at a, at a TV station in Africa. Yeah. Like they just happen to have these old tapes of these videos of the of of these episodes that have been missing since they aired and uh and we got to see them for the first time ever and it was crazy. And now like, you know, the episodes that they don't think they're ever going to find, they end up like animating them. Uh they just did that with Power of the Daleks last year, which was really cool, but uh cuz they have the audio because they would do this thing where when they played it on TV to make sure that the TV was going correctly, like the broadcast was happening correctly, they would set up a camera and an audio recorder in front of the TV as they were broadcasting it. And so they would record all of the audio and then the the, the camera would take a picture every like 30 seconds just to make sure that everything was working right. Huh. Um, and so uh, we have the audio from all of the stories, and then they use that to sort of reconstruct the episode in animation or whatever. But yeah, I mean that's a similar thing to what you're talking about. Is they just they didn't care about that stuff. Like this was just a job for them. It's like you know, it's like the like, all, nobody's gonna like, care. You know, what right? Exactly. It's like all of those stories that you hear about Jack Kirby would do an issue of like fantastic four. And then he would just like tear up his original art to use as like notes to like mm-hmm. leave for Stan in the office or something. And well, it's just and- like, uh, Oh my God. Like that would be worth so much money now. And you just tore it all up and used it as note paper. Um, and I know like for Jack Kirby after, like after some of the, I mean, this is, probably not going to be something oh, let me explain some stuff for our listeners that they might not be familiar with jack kirby was a comic book artist uh mostly for marvel but also for dc uh-huh. uh and he worked a lot with stanley he is considered the co-creator at least for many things like like the x-men not spider-man uh that went to someone else but um, the fantastic four yeah Ditko did spider-man uh fantastic four x-men uh so much so much stuff. Silver Surfer, I think, was a Jack Kirby. Yep, Thor. Thor. Um, and 
because of the way the legal rights went for things, he was not given creator rights for much stuff mm-hmm. until much later in his life. And at some point when he got some of those rights, he was also given a lot of his artwork back mm-hmm. um, that they had just kind of in files. And so his home had tons and tons of his original artwork. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I can't really do anything with it. Like if he had friends that would come over or, or somebody like tracked him down, it's like, can I just come like interview you? I'm like, yeah, you want to take some art? Like, and he would just sell it back to him for almost nothing. <laughs> and, and, but like it, his, his art is worth a fortune now because of how much he did and how foundational it was to right. uh, modern comics. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. at the time he was just like, oh, I'm working. This is what I, yeah, this is my, it's, job. It's, it's I my stuff. This crap. Yeah. Like I just, I, I roll up my sleeves. I get the job done. I mean, that guy, he did like four pages a day or something insane. Yeah. Like he, that. he was amazingly prolific. Like he produced comic books at a rate that nobody today can, can, can comparably do as far as art goes. Right. Uh, and for him, it was like, it was necessary to get by. He had no idea that the X-Men was going to become a multi-million dollar franchise property. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, his, his work on it would be fundamental to that. If for him, it's like, well, you know, I come in, I draw comics, I get a paycheck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, right. it's a totally and different. That, and that was the, that was just the general attitude of people who worked in the arts at the time. Uh, yeah. You know, the things that were, were uh, like, I would call them like workhorse arts because there were still the arts. You still had artists, but no one considered comics and movies and TV, the arts at the time. Especially, especially cartoons. Right. Uh, as far as film a, goes. It was just a job. So like these people, they just showed up and they were like, yeah, I'm getting paid. This is great. That's, that's all. And, and they just did their job and be, did these amazing things that they didn't even appreciate themselves at the time because yeah. they were just happy to be getting paid. And if some somehow um, someone was able to travel in time and go back to that time and be like, hey, document th- th- everything. everything, this thing you're doing is amazing and it will change lives it will be historic it will do this and do that they would either they would probably be in very big shock and question their credibility as well as some of them might not even care entirely yeah they they don't care either because it's it's just the job they'd be like well there's no point in us documenting these things it's not going to be looked at like I don't care if you're saying that it's going to want to be looked at. It's not going to. You're lying. This is mm-hmm. um, this is not what I'm like like what I'm doing right now. I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it for this. Yeah. For at that. at the end of my major in college, um, part of the the capstone course, we took a trip to Hollywood, and we got a tour from an alumni at Fox Studios, like a true behind the scenes tour. <laughs> And he was their photo archivist. And he told us about how the studios have only barely started to care about archiving um, in the last few years. So there's decades and decades and decades of, you know, like crucial, important films that don't have any kind of archive associated with them. And 
And that's when he, he showed us like this movie poster. He's like, here's a movie poster. We have a script. We have this movie poster. We don't have a copy of the film. We will probably never know what it actually looked like on film because we just don't have it. It's from the forties. We don't have it. They didn't think it was important. We didn't keep a copy. There's so many things that they don't keep copies of. I mean, he, he showed us like the things they have started to keep. And, um, you know, he taught us about what they do with them now. And so we saw props. I saw a Wilson, the volleyball from castaway. He's like, yeah, this is one of the, like the Wilson's from the film. But you don't know if it was, but yeah, we don't, a, we don't know film. if it was like in a shot. Cause they don't like serial number them and say, was it used in a shot or not? And things like that. That's crazy. Um, and, and then we, they, they showed us the costume department at Fox and he said, yeah, like we keep a lot of the costumes because sometimes other studios rent them out. So I saw like the X-Men costumes at Fox oh. studios and, um, and all these things. And they said, yeah, like this is a section. This is the largest collection in Hollywood of, um, turn of the century clothing. It's from Titanic. But when another studio was making Sherlock Holmes, they borrowed a ton of it for extras. Oh. And it's like, yeah, so we keep it now. And we have, like, good relationships with the other studios. We'll rent it out and, and things like that. But then he he also took us downstairs. And he's like, there are some things. He showed us, like, the photo archives that they had. He said there are some things that there's a good record of. And that's... Photos of stars from like the contract stars, like studio stars days Mm -hmm. where they would like part of their contract was they'd have to do X number of photo shoots. And so they do have like these binders and boxes full of photographs from these photo shoots of movie stars. Yeah. Yeah. But like they don't go into anything like these are like hundreds or maybe thousands of photographs of the most popular stars of those days. Like, yeah, they, you know, took them so they could put them in magazines or sell them to, to magazines or whatever. But if they didn't sell them, then they don't do anything. And so, like, there's this these binders and shelves full of, like, Shirley Temple photographs <laughs> that nobody's going to see. They're, they, they're not publishing, like, a coffee table book with them, <laughs> which they totally should be. <laughs> yeah. Like, people would love these things. Yeah. Um, and, like, they're lucky to have those photographs and stuff. And now they're finally starting to, like, put some money into, like, having an archive that can sustain them, that has the, like, proper environmental conditions uh, to to preserve them so they don't deteriorate. And he's like, there's photographs that have just fallen apart because the conditions were bad. It was just in um, a musky office. Uh, that's just uh, it's insane it's insane and i can i can only imagine the same is true for all this disney stuff yeah if if someone were had documented each each thing like everything basically if someone had documented um anything that they were working on and everything and how it worked and everything we would have these answers yeah about how they're doing the light in a 2d animation but in, in 50 years, nobody's going to even know how to attempt to do it because 2D animation is falling away so quickly. Um, even, even the 2D animation that exists is being done primarily on the computer now. Yeah. yeah. And even in the, in the 90s and stuff, I know um, studios were outsourcing things to 
to Asian countries where they do the the cell animation that they were doing in the Walt Disney Studios buildings um, for for this, you know, where we've talked about the the women, the hundreds of women that were doing all this ink and paint by hand. That sort of stuff got outsourced to Asia a lot in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so those processes aren't experienced um, mm-hmm. for animators now. They, they build kind of the story and these animation guidelines, but they don't have to do all this ink and yeah. paint. Yeah. And in 50 years, what we, what little we know of the multi-pane um, yeah, this, camera. Yeah, this 12-foot camera. Yeah, we, we know very little about it in 50 years they might not know hardly anything at all. Mm-hmm. Like they'll know little, even less than we do. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for what we do have. <laughs> yeah. I am, I am, you know, I think more than anything, I'm really glad that we have as much documentation about sleeping beauty as we have, because I think that's the one that if we didn't have stuff for, I'd feel really sad because that, had such a complex production. Uh, I'm I'm glad that we have so much information about that movie. Yeah, and I'm glad that there are people who are passionate about it um, enough to collect these things and and make these books and and you know that Kestra has this creation creating a classic creation of classic um, book with all these sketches and drawings and notes like and it's, it's a treasure and it's done the book. Um is done by the Disney family um, mm. museum. museum. And if we didn't Which have isn't the even museum, studio associated. Yeah, it's, not, it's, it's, it's through the family. The family. So if, even if we, if we didn't have the family, the Walt Disney family, and then working on the museum and getting all these things together, then we wouldn't have this book. We wouldn't have um, a, a wall of paint. Uh, yeah. They have a, they have a wall of, the jars of paint, the pigments that they used for Snow White, that they used to paint on the cells. Someone probably would have destroyed the multi-pane camera that they have in the museum. Mm-hmm. It, things wow. would have been destroyed. Things would have just been lost and hidden away in, in attics. And, and, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, certainly there are things that are still lost and hidden, but we are... I hope someone finds them. <laughs> but we are... We have these things at our hands because of the Disney family. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's also things at the, at the studios that, that they, they have there, but no one really sees any of that. Mm-hmm. They're, they they're hardly let away. anybody tour and, the studios deeply that far. Yeah. And they don't, and they're not going to put the effort to, you know, put together these books. Like the family put together the Snow White book. The studio didn't say, Hey, I bet people really need to know, all these things that went into the creation of Snow White. Yeah. The family said that. And the studios are focused on making the movies and, and moving forward. Um, and it's only in recent years that they've started to do these archives. Yeah. And it's it's really sad that there's so much that's lost and that we can't conveniently find. Um, you know, when I searched information on on lighting and animation, everything came up with 3D animation. Because that's what people are writing about. That's what people know about. And it's what people right. do now. So, right. you know, nine times out of ten, that's what they're looking it up for. You know, when we're doing a podcast about a 70-year-old film, 80-year-old film, uh, you know, you got to find that information. It's not on the internet. Uh-huh. They didn't have the internet. 
Yeah, like it, it's lucky if it's in a book. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet you guys ran into things like that with Back to the Future. I bet a lot of your stuff, fortunately, was able to be like anecdotal um, accounts of things that were going on. Right. Because you have, you know, the living uh, people from it. Right. And and uh, and Steven Spielberg generally is really good about archiving and documentation and stuff. Um I don't know. I, I think it's because he's from like a generation that appreciated what came before. And he was like, but I don't, I can't get any of the information that I want to have and wish I could have. So when I make movies, I'm going to make sure that we keep track of all of that stuff. And so all the things that all the movies that he tended to be in charge of, whether that was directing himself or producing in the case of back to the future, uh, they all tend to be heavily documented and, uh, a lot of things like kept, uh, and, and, you know, whatever, but yeah, like he, he's pretty good about it, but I, I imagine that other people, um, have, uh, generally have trouble finding stuff. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, but, yeah. uh, we're, we're very lucky. <laughs> well, we, we all have different challenges as we do these movies by minutes podcasts. Every, yeah. every film is a different animal. Oh, yeah. When it comes to, you know, tracking down the information and how intensely people have have worked on it before. Absolutely. But hopefully these uh, these podcasts are a little bit of an archive of their own. Yeah. And and maybe it. Yeah. um, It will help someone be like, oh, I do have this box of stuff hidden away from my great grandpa. Who was an animator. Who was an animator who had kept all these things or, or personal journals or anything like or that. These like would be that. great they'll, things. They'll be like, Oh, well that that's, that's something to think about. And then they'll be like, but I saw this thing once. Let's go see if I can find it. I, I'm, I'm telling you listeners, if you know something, go <laughs> if find you were, it. <laughs> if you were related to someone who was working there, check their journals, check mm-hmm. their notebooks, check everything, your attic, check that. your basement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, if you are like Kestra and your great grandmother was designing a dress. Mm-hmm. My my great grandma designed Snow White's dress. Oh. I Do you guys have journals? I don't I don't know. That's that'd be something to talk to my grandpa about, but they don't have a lot from her. Yeah. Wow. So, so you know, I, I always hope that more stuff will be found. Um and I'm I'm grateful for what we have. And I hope that, you know, maybe what we're doing will be useful to, to someone someday, too. Uh, this has been an oddly non-Snow White-centric <laughs> segment of the show. Did you have any other notes about this minute? About uh, minute 35? Which end do we kill first? <laughs> That's Happy's question? Yeah. Happy's question. That was Happy's <laughs> question. Which end do we kill first? <laughs> Which I think I'm pretty sure it's fine either way, as long as it kills. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did. I did want to mention that they said Jiminy Crickets again. Yes, which we we've, we've we, noted. We, we noted it last week, and I think this is the last time they mention it in this film. Um, but they go Jiminy not, Crickets. Not Gosh, yet a character. Gee. Not not quite a character yet, but still uh, standing in yeah. for whatever you care to say. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting because I mean he he would then be in the very next film that they made, right? Yeah, they would have been probably in some level of production. Yeah, at this point. God, that's 
it's insane to think about the the incredible leap from Snow White, which in and of itself was an incredible leap from Silly Symphonies. And then the incredible leap from Snow White to Pinocchio, which yeah. I don't consider – they're not even like – I don't even feel like they're on par. Like because Pinocchio was like an epic in comparison to Snow yeah, White. Yeah, the- the story is grander and different and this very intense morality message. Yeah, right. I mean, it goes everywhere. Like you started in an Italian village. You and, and it hardly up, has, hardly has comedy like Snow yeah. White does. But actually, right. now that I think about it, Snow White seems to have more in common with just like all the princess movies, like Cinderella uh-huh. rather than, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Bambi, they all, the ones that have a princess feature Mm -hmm. seem more connected to each other and more linked to each other and the, and more fluid in the animation that leads to each other rather than to the very next one, which was Pinocchio. And then you've got Fantasia and Dumbo and Bambi and and all of those things. It's, I mean, they were experimenting wildly. Yeah. 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 Um, while still keeping kind of this core of the the princess fairy tales, um, which is really the the Disney core, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, because I mean they would have a huge leap in the princess things every time they did one. Because you go from like Snow White to Cinderella, that's a pretty huge leap, and then Cinderella to Sleeping Beauty is another huge leap. And then there's the huge thirty year difference. It's forty. Uh, there's, I think it's just a thirty year gap. Thirty from, year gap from. Um, uh, from Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping to, Beauty Little to Little Mermaid, right? Yeah. And in between, and, them, and then they... at that point, at that point, their princesses get way more complex. Yes, because but they also <laughs> had to relearn animation styles and, right. and tricks. They had to look at the archives that they did have and say, "How did they make Snow White? Oh, they had these, you know, performance references. Let's try some of that." Right, right. Which makes me think that if we do, if we did have more of an archive. Would our animation techniques now be, be different. different? I don't know. Ugh. Interesting. We'll never know. The last thing I wanted to mention on this minute was the, sh- the so they pull up the sh- the sheets and they almost hurt her and they mm-hmm. zoom in on her face mm-hmm. of her sleeping. She looks a little bit different to me in that the shot. The texture, yeah, but also it's it seems pretty much exactly like a shot of Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They may have borrowed um, you they know, did, that, they did, that they animation did sequence and, and like, like traced that, over. But yeah, like it seems very like... It's a Sleeping Beauty moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> Scott, did you have any final uh, statements on this minute? No, uh, but thank you so much for having me on this week. This was a lot of fun. Oh, we do have one question we ask every every guest. Oh, uh, oh okay. All right. Uh, and I guess it's not really relevant to these minutes because Snow White didn't speak at all. But we always <laughs> ask um, if you find the voice annoying or if you're able to kind of take it in stride. Uh, I mean, I think I, I – it's, it's not great. Um, 
But I don't think it quite reaches the level of like nails on a chalkboard to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, there's a good read that that's probably one of the main reasons why this isn't a movie that I of the of the Disney pantheon. This is not one that I watch a lot, and I think a lot of it has to do with Snow White's voice being a little grating. I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. We uh we find it okay. In the film itself, like as as you watch it, and you're like ah, this works. Like it feel it feels like it should be annoying, but in the film, as you watch it, it seems to if be you okay. Take it for out us. of context; it's a yeah. little bit different. So if you're not, you know, but... strictly paying attention and watching, I can totally see it being yeah. uncomfortable. It's but definitely you... it's definitely the voice that people like actresses is actresses is actress. Is that how you pluralize that? Anyway. Um, actresses. Act- actresses. How they uh, – this is the voice that they imitate when they're doing a princess voice. Yeah. Um, it's always it's, it's this It's foundational one. princess. Yeah. Like when I think of like Enchanted, like this is That's the voice – That's what I was that, thinking of. <laughs> yeah. This is the voice that Amy Adams is doing is she's doing this voice. Um, and when you go and see like stage plays and like – like you have a, a an actress who's doing sort of like a a musical, you know, princess voice. It's usually something like this. Um, so there is definitely something iconic about it. Uh, but you know, I can only take so much. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, thank you again for for being on this week. And if people want to find more of your stuff, including the upcoming Spider Man Minute. Uh, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, other than iTunes and all of your your you know podcatchers, whatever you use for that, we're on all of that. But then also duelinggenre.com. dot uh, com. Go check out what we have. And I just want to emphasize again, Geek by Night because it's my baby. Uh, go go listen to that if you want something that's a little change of pace from the uh, sort of talk radio style. It's a it's an audio drama, but it's it's um you know it's fully cast sound effects. An original score, everything. So uh, go check that out, and it's all at duelinggenre.com. Sounds great. And as for us, you can keep listening to us uh, every weekday through this same subscription feed that you're on. Be sure to share us with friends, give us a rating or a review. Uh, But until next week, when we do more of Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, just whistle while you work. (laughs) 